I was talking to a friend this week, and I was actually complaining about something. I was, uh, some of you may know, I was back in Montana this past week on vacation with uh, my twin daughters. Uh, that's the second year we've kind of gone in February time frame to see cousins and family. It's a time for me to be able to, um, to rest, and I was able to get up to, uh, to, to uh, Bridger Bowl and do some phenomenal snowboarding. Uh, it was a great restful time. And I was talking with someone that I, I knew, you've known for a long time, and I was actually complaining. And he said, you know, I thought it was very shrewd in how he went about this. He said, you know, Bruce, he said, I've been listening to your sermons lately, your sermons on James. And, I, and he said, they, they've been really good, really, very convicting, but also very encouraging. And I said, oh, good, great. And then he said, yeah, I've really benefited from your sermons and I think you could too. Because <laughs> I was, I was complaining about stuff. And he said, yeah, I remember seeing something in James about how the idea of you should rejoice or be confident in the midst of crisis. Wasn't there something in there about that? I don't know about you, but I need to hear the truth again and again and again. And I want to encourage you, like he's, he encouraged me, to actually go back and listen to God's word to listen to those sermons again, because what James has to say is so counterintuitive. It's so countercultural. So again, I mean, those, those sermons are online. They're available through, through streaming, through, um, you know, if you want to, if you have uh, on your, uh, on your, uh, your phones, you can uh, um, use um, the various apps that are available. So again, you're in the, in the car commuting somewhere or perhaps you're on a walk. And again, it certainly doesn't have to be my preaching. There are a lot better preachers out there. And there, there, there are serve. I just want to encourage you to listen to God's word. Some of the most uh, meaningful times of growth in my life were times when, just by God's grace, I ran across a sermon that really impacted me. And I would listen to that sermon again, and listen to it again, and listen to it again to the point where I could almost parrot the whole sermon. In fact, that's how a lot of young preachers start off, is they, they hear things that are so moving to them that they hear them and they actually begin to imitate and to follow. They, they sort of learn their voice under the voices of other preachers. But all that's an aside. The, point, the bottom line is to listen to God's word. And that especially is important this morning as we turn to James chapter 3, where James is t- telling us about the power of speech. This morning, if you noticed, we sang songs that had to do with, with Jesus as our shepherd, with Jesus as the judge of all who is coming on the clouds. We, we asked, we, we asked in, a, in a sung prayer of illumination, we asked God to speak, speak, O Lord, asking, we want to hear from you. But this morning, as we turn to consider what James is saying, he's speaking of the power, the devastating power of the tongue. And it's so funny, if James had ever heard the saying that we often say as kids, sticks and stones may break my bones, but what? Words will never hurt me. He would laugh. He would ridicule that and say, you've got to be kidding me. I can remember the second year when I was in seminary, um, a fellow classmate, fellow future pastor, uh, his name's Tony. Tony was a big guy. He was Italian. He was from New York. Um, he looked like someone that you'd see, uh, who you've seen on the HBO series, The Sopranos. You know, these big Italian guys, or maybe from The Godfather or something like that. Just this guy that you, don't, you wouldn't want to mess around with. And I remember him telling me, sharing about his childhood. He said, you know, nothing was ever good enough for my dad. Talked about how his dad would berate and belittle him throughout his childhood. 
And he, it's the only, really I knew, the only way I really knew to cope was to, to eat. And so he'd eat and he'd eat, and his dad would make fun of his weight, make fun of him. And he said to me something I will never forget my entire life. He said, you know, if someone tells you that you are worthless enough times, you'll begin to believe it. Here's this guy, I mean, I don't know, 6162, heavy set, intimidating guy. And he's just torn to pieces. Torn to pieces by a father with his words. And when he said that, when he said those, I responded in two ways. He said, first, for, for, first, I, my, my response just in my heart was, my heart just broke for him. It just broke. And the second thing that I, I remember thinking was that I, I couldn't relate to that. See, I grew, up in a, I grew up in a great home. I grew up in a phenomenal home. I grew up and had good friends, and I, I just couldn't. I, I, so I, I, my heart broke for him, but I couldn't relate to him. And that was, that was in my, my mid-late 20s when I was in seminary. But now, at the age of 42, having been in ministry, ministry not even that long, only seven or eight years, formal ministry, I know exactly what Tom means. I know exactly what he means. In fact, I had, excuse me, Tony, I had, been, I had been verbally attacked. I had been verbally attacked, slandered, defamed, falsely accused within ministry, within the context of the church to, agree, to do such a degree that I wake up some mornings having to convince myself through prayer and meditation and scripture that I actually have some worth. And, you know, maybe you could say, you know, Bruce, you know, stop being such a wimp. Just man up, right? And I think there's some truth to that. I really do. You know, I struggle with taking things too personally, make it about me. I personalize things in a way that's really, really um, leads to a lot of unnecessary uh, harm. Um, I also think I, I care too much about others' opinions. So I'll agree with you in part, but I want to read you. I want to read with you something that King David said. If you have your Bibles in front of your pew Bible, turn to page 490. This is Psalm 55. I mentioned earlier that, that, that so much of the Psalms are actually Psalms of lament, and this is, this is one of them. Psalm 55, again, it's page 490, or actually the text, the part that we're going to read is on 491. And, and David has this to say, such powerful words. So I'm going to begin in verse 6. Again, think of King David. King David was this, this warrior king, right? He was brave. He was courageous. He led, he led his men into battle, often in great odds. He's the one who killed the mighty uh, giant Goliath with a mere a slingshot. This is what he says in Psalm 55. Look at verse 6. I said, Oh, that I had the wings of a dove. I would fly away and be at rest. Have you ever felt that way before? You just, you just want to check out. You just want to get out of here, right? I would flee far away and stay in the desert. <laughs> it's like no one can find me. I would hurry to my place of shelter far from the tempest and storm. And he says, verse 9, Lord, confuse the wicked. There's that word again. Those who pretend to be committed but aren't. Lord, confuse the wicked. Confound their words. He's like, well, who is he talking about? Who are these wicked people? Look at verse 12. This is so amazing. Again, here's this, this great king, this courageous warrior king who's not afraid of anything, who's sort of this man's man. And listen to what he says in verse 12. If an enemy were insulting me, I could endure it. If a foe were rising, or rising himself or rising against me, I could hide. 
but it is you, man like myself, my companion, my close friend, with whom I once enjoyed sweet fellowship at the house of God as we walked about among the worshipers. You see what David's saying? Again, this brave and uh, deadly, this, this uh, uh, amazingly gifted uh, warrior king, again, who killed so many. He says, I just want to run away. I just want to get out of here. Do you know why? Because of the wounds of a former friend. The wounds of a fake friend. So often it is not those, it's not the enemies around us who hurt us the most. It is those within our own home. Right? Those within our own families, our own, our own situations, our own, our own churches. This morning, I want to share two things. Two things that we are so tempted to underestimate. First, we are tempted to underestimate the power of our words to kill. The power of our words to kill. The power of our words to harm and to hurt. And second, we are tempted to underestimate the power of God's word to create. The power of our words to kill and the power of God's word to create. The power of our words to harm and hurt and the power of God's word to heal. So first, James wants to remind us of the power of our words to kill. Look at, the, look at the context of James' reminder. Look in verse 1. This is so interesting. I, not, he says, Not many of you should become teachers, my fellow believers, because you know that we who teach will be judged more strictly. Now, I think James' words this morning here, verse 1, are so timely. They're so important for our culture at this moment. Now, I would wonder if we live, I would wonder if we live in a time of such incredible confusion. Incredible confusion. Let me explain what I mean. This past week I was in Montana visiting family, and my brother Brian and I were, were out snowshoeing in the Beartooth Mountains. It was this glorious day. It was absolutely beautiful. We were up at a place called Highlight Lake, and we were actually walking on the lake. It was kind of cool. You can, say, you can tell people your pastors walked on a lake before because it was completely frozen over. And I actually was a little hesitant. I was like, are you sure this is okay? Like walking out on the lake, you know, you see movies and then if someone walks on the ice and inevitably what happens, they fall through. And my brother laughed. He's like, man, you could drive a car out here. There's no way. There's, so, okay, fine. So, you know, I figured he, you know, he's always been, he's a firstborn, so he's much more cautious than I am. And so I thought, well, hey, if he's okay with this, I'm going to be good. So we did. We started walking out on the lake and we actually came to this area where there was a stream and there was, there was, you could see the water going underneath the ice. And there was, a, there was a snow bridge over it. And he's like, hey, let's go over the snow bridge. And I'm like, ah, you sure? And he's like, yeah. And he just walks right over. And so I, I thought, okay, what's going to happen is he's going to walk over. And he's going to make it all. He's going to loosen it up. And then I'll walk over and I'll go down. But sure enough, we, we were fine. I'm, I'm alive. I'm still here. And we had, we had a, it was a beautiful day. And as we were out in the middle of the lake, he looked over to a mountain. And he said, you know, um, actually last summer, he says, um, my daughter, Brookie, and I, Brooklyn, we call her Brookie. Uh, Brookie and I, we climbed that mountain. He said, I, I couldn't believe. He said, took me, he said, he took me all day. It took us all day to do it. And he says, although it was fun overall, he said, at times it was pretty fearful and actually quite frustrating. And of course, me being the city slicker that I am, I said, all day? Really? That mountain? That took you all day? Really? And I said, why would it be so fearful and frustrating? It's just, it's just climbing a mountain. And he, Brian chuckled, and he said, well, listen, understand, at that, on this particular mountain, there are no trails to the top. So that may sound fun, 
But after you start, you realize that there are all kinds of bad ways to climb a mountain. Now listen, in our day, so many of the paths, the old paths, are gone. And people are told, climb the mountain however you want to. And at first, that sounds great. Oh yeah, I'm going to get to the top however I want to. Not realizing that there are so many, there's so much terrain that is very difficult to navigate. It's actually quite fearful. That leads us into situations where there's actually a lot of anxiety, a lot of worry, a lot of fear of missing out, not knowing which way should I go up the mountain. Not only that, but there's more, de- more despair and depression amongst young people than ever because it's just overwhelming. And how am, I supposed, how am I supposed to climb this mountain? There are no paths anymore. And when there are no paths, at first it seems fun, but it becomes very scary. And the need, listen, the need for persons of wisdom and humility to come alongside for teachers, for counselors, informal, not to be you know, technical teachers, not formal pastors, but informal persons with life experience and humility to come alongside younger people and say, here, I've been up this part of the mountain, come on up this way. There is so much need for those, uh, for, for persons who are simply willing to invest in the lives of others. But here in our text, James is saying, what? What's he saying? Not many of you should become teachers. Not many of you should counsel. Why? Well, because you know that we who teach will be judged more strictly. So here's the, just the beginning point I want to make. So James places his, his, his critique of our words within the context of, of a need and a caution for teachers. A confused world needs counsel, but we need to be careful lest we ourselves be condemned. That's what he's saying. And so if we, if we were to counsel, if we are to counsel without being condemned, what must we do? Look at verse 2. James tells us, he says, we all stumble in many ways. I love that. He's just so, so realistic. You know, we all stumble in so many different kinds of ways. Anyone, listen to what he says next. Anyone who is never at fault in what they say is perfect, able to keep their whole body in check. In other words, if, if we're going to counsel others, if we're going to be teachers, we're going to counsel, we must first learn to control our own tongue. Why is that? Because James says our tongue controls us. Again, look at verse 2. Anyone who's never at fault in what they say is perfect. It's incredible. This idea that, hey, if I can learn to control my tongue, the rest will follow. The person who does that is able to keep their whole body in check. Control what you say, says James, and you can control all of yourself. If you can master what you say, you have mastered yourself. Why? Because our tongues control us. Look at verses 3 through 5. This notion that our tongues, that our our speech actually guides our entire lives. Verse 3, when we put bits into the mouths of horses to make them obey us, we can turn the whole animal. Or take ships as an example. Although they are so large and are driven by strong winds, they are steered by a very small rudder wherever the pilot wants to go. Likewise, the tongue is a very small part of the body, 
but it makes great boasts. That is to say that it is able to control our lives in amazing ways. Our words, our words set our lives, listen to this, our words set our lives on a trajectory that we often can't reverse. I remember reading a, a, a wonderful book on marriage by, um, by Brian Chappell. It's a book called uh, Each for the Other. And in the book, I remember him talking about the, a particular verse in Ephesians. We talked, so he's addressing husbands and wives. And it's, the, it's Paul's concluding words to men and women, to husbands and wives. And he says, husbands love your, the, the, the husband must love his wife, and the wife must respect her husband. Isn't that interesting? He tells the men, hey, you need to love your wife. And women, you need to respect your husband. He says, well, why does, why does he give those specific exhortations to the, to, to the husband and wife? And he says, this is what Chapel has to say. I think this is so interesting. A man's temptation is to use the power of his position and physique to enforce dictatorial rule or to indulge in passive self-absorption. A woman's temptation, a wife's temptation, is often to use the power of words and emotions to shame her husband into doing as she wishes. The power in the, in the chapel gives us amazing examples, an illustration. The power of the forces the apostle seeks to curb were dramatically evident to Kathy and me early in our marriage. He says, our small salaries required us to live in a cheap apartment in a poor part of town. There, the paper-thin walls of the housing complex gave us an ear-opening perspective on others' lives. Our sheltered suburban backgrounds did not prepare us for the vileness and violence the families around us considered to be normal. Most disconcerting was the minister's family that lived below us. Most of the fights between a minister's family, okay, that lived below us. Most of the fights between the husband and wife were about who was the better witness. Isn't that amazing? We usually tried to ignore the shouts and slaps until we could hear the hymn choking her. Oh. Then we would try to find some way to intervene. We would drop books on the floor. We'd call on the phone or borrow cups of sugar at very odd times. Occasionally, we called the police. The experience sickened us, but it also matured us. As we listened to the husband and wife shout their way to, to a brutal climax of what became almost nightly conflicts, we began to recognize a pattern. Now, this is the pattern. So their words are inevitably, again and again, leading to a pattern, a way of interacting, a way of life. The tongue is controlling their lives and setting them on a course of action that will ruin their marriage. The tongue is in control. Chapel continues, the husband would get irritated with something his wife or children had done. He would shout his disapproval. There's words. The wife, in turn, would begin to criticize him with equal volume and at greater length. Her readiness to escalate the verbal combat surprised Kathy and me. We would sometimes turn to one another and say, why does she taunt him like that? She knows he's going to hit her. We did not know, we did not know what we have since learned about abusive homes. As a man will try to dominate a woman with strength, a woman will try to control a man with shame. The verbal criticism our downstairs neighbor directed at her husband was her weapon to make her husband back down. Sometimes it worked, and sometimes it did not. 
So this we see here, this, this pattern of behavior that become locked in, and it's our tongues that control us. They set our lives on this trajectory from which there's no return. Do you see what James is saying? The power of the tongue over us. He's saying, look, we need good counselors. We need people who are going to come alongside and, and be teachers. But in order to do that, you've got to learn to control your tongue. Because if you can control your tongue, you can control everything else. But as it is, your tongue is in control, and it will take you down a path that you will not realize until it's too late. I can remember talking to an elder, a, a wise, a loving elder in a church. This is when Sarah and I were in the UK, and this elder, he came up to me, and he shared one time after a sermon. He said, you know, it was a sermon about warning, how to, how to really lovingly, graciously, you know, tenderly, tearfully warn someone, and I'd admonish them to express concern for them. He said, you know, I'll never forget. He said, if only I had heard this sermon like 10, 10 years ago. Because I had a loved one who was in a very difficult situation. I wanted to say something to them. I wanted to warn them. And the time, the time came, and I said nothing, and the time went. And he said, and now it's too late. See, it's not just the things that we say that can set us on a trajectory that we will regret. It's the things we don't say. See, some of us are like, we just, we're just, all we just destroy people with our words. Others of us, oh, we're just, we just, we just, shut, we just button up and we're quiet and we don't say anything. And there's a deafening silence. And we look back and we re- all we can do is regret. The time came, the time went, and it was too late. I don't know if you've ever had a chance. This is one of the most beautiful things to do in ministry is to sit down with a widow or a widower. And if you're, I can remember as a young man, I think I shared this a couple weeks ago, I was asked to be, or I was assigned to be a deacon at a church and to care for the widows and widowers in the church, mostly the widows. And I can remember sitting down with them, and I have done this all throughout my ministry, to sit down with widows and widowers, and one of the most amazing, as they shared, the, I asked them about, tell me about your spouse. Tell me, what were they like? What did you love most about them? We kind of celebrate their spouse together. And then I say, well, what, what regrets do you have? And almost without exception, they will say that they regretted how they used their words. I was too critical. I was too mean. I was too nagging, too complaining. Or they'll say, you know, I just never, I never said thank you. I never affirmed them. I never told them how wonderful they could be. They regret how they used their words, their tongue took control and guided the entire course of their lives. James says we need, we desperately need counselors. But in order to do that, you've got to learn to control your tongue because your your tongue will control you. So James wants us to see Are we in control of our tongues? Because our tongues are controlling us and the outcome is usually catastrophic. Look at verse five. The outcome is catastrophic. Consider what a great forest is set on fire. What a great forest is set on fire by such a small spark. Verse six, the tongue also is a fire, a world of evil. So do you see in verse five, this, he uses examples. Kind of first, they're kind of tame. The idea of a bit and a horse, the idea of a, of a rudder and a ship. But then with this, this, this final 
illustration, the idea of a, of, a, of a spark that sets a forest on fire. That's this catastrophic outcome, right? This tiny little thing called the tongue is able to actually bring about a, a world of devastation. Verse 6, the tongue also is a fire, a world of evil among the parts of the body. It corrupts the whole body, sets the whole course of one's life on fire, and is itself set on fire by hell. Listen, our tongues control us catastrophically, destroying, destroying us, defiling us, destroying others, so that one day, says James, the tongue itself will be destroyed, set on fire by hell. Let me, let me, let me be clear what James is saying. If we don't get our tongues in control, if we don't keep them from destroying others, we ourselves will be destroyed. It only makes sense. At some point, God's going to say to the world, you know what, time out. I am done with you destroying one another with your tongues. It's over. But why is the tongue's control so catastrophic? Why is it so catastrophic? Because, says James, the tongue itself is out of control. Look at verses 7 and 8. All kinds of animals, birds, reptiles, and sea creatures are being tamed and have been tamed by mankind, but no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. James is saying, don't underestimate the power of the tongue to kill. The power of the tongue to kill. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. So out of control is the tongue that it makes us, it makes us as humans into a living, walking contradiction. Look at verses 9 through 11. With the tongue we praise our Lord and Father, and with it we curse human beings who have been made in God's likeness. Out of the same mouth comes praise, comes blessing, and cursing. My brothers and sisters, this should not be. Can fresh water and salt water flow from the same spring? James says, look, how is it possible that you can actually praise and worship God and then turn around and look at someone that you know, a person that you know, and destroy them verbally? Or just suddenly just, just, you know, like, you know, just, just withdraw from them and give them the silent treatment? How is that possible? Because the one that you are despising, the one that you're cursing, the one that, that we are so berating, is actually an image of the, of the one that we're praising. How is that even possible? It doesn't make any sense. It's a contradiction. Think about that. If we are naturally people who do not like others, if we are given to criticize, given to, to, to look at others and, and destroy them and hurt them or withdraw from them in a way that just says, you know, you're dead to me. And we think, you know, that's okay but I'm going to worship God. God sits there and says, you know what? You are a complete walking contradiction. And why the contradiction? Look at verse, look at, look at here in this, uh, in this next verse, in verse 12. My brothers and sisters, excuse me, make sure I got the right, here, right, the right verse there. Yes, verse 12. My brothers and sisters, he says, can a fig tree bear olives? Can a grapevine bear frigs? Neither can a salt spring produce fresh water. James is saying, look, the reason, the reason why you're a contradiction is because you're an unchanged person. You're supposed to be a fig tree. You're supposed to be a fig tree, or you're supposed to be a grapevine, and you're producing the wrong sorts of things. And the idea is simply this, that you have not been changed. 
See, our words reveal our hearts. At the end of the day, it is a heart problem. And here's the thing that, that James wants us to hear. We can't change ourselves. We can't change ourselves. It's impossible. You cannot change how you speak on your own. In the way that figs cannot produce, fig trees cannot produce olives, nor grapevines bear figs, we who are evil cannot say anything good. That's what Jesus says. But here, our words have the power to kill. But listen to this. God has the power to create life. God has the power to create. James has already said this. He doesn't say it here in this particular context. But if you would, turn back to James 1. Just very quickly, turn back to James 1, verse 21 here. This is so beautiful. I love how James speaks of God's word as having the power to create. God's word is having the power to create. So again, just a few pages back there. In, in, uh, it's on, on page um, 1043 in your pew Bible. This is, listen to what James says in verse 21. This is, I'm sorry, verse 21. He's, it's in, um, yes, verse 21. Therefore, get rid of all moral filth and the evil that is so prevalent and humbly accept the word planted in you which can save you. That word save can also mean heal. He's saying there actually is a word, it is God's word, and it is there to be, it's been planted in you and it can save you. The only way to escape critical, reckless words, the only way to muster the courage to speak when we are silent is to look to God's word and ask him, Plant your word deep within me. Speak, O Lord, and fulfill in me all your purposes for your glory. I am begging you to create a new heart within me. I am helpless before you to change my words. I know myself, and all I do again and again is just criticize and complain. Will you change my heart? We throw ourselves at God's compassion and his mercy asking him to change us. Do you believe in the power of the tongue, the power of our words to kill? Too often I think my words are harmless. Sarah's over there crying, and what's wrong with her, right? Sarah and I are talking. I remember early on in our marriage, I would just, you know, I'd criticize Sarah for something. And I'm, I'm very precise. I can sit and try to zero in and see what's wrong. I, I point it out, this is what's wrong with you. And she'd say, you know, and she'd be crying. She'd say, you know, you're right. You're right. She said, so mean. I mean, she was hurt so much. And I said, well, it's true. It's true, and it's deadly. It kills. And the reason it kills is because it's only half true. There is one who can create and redeem and renew us. Let me just close with this word of exhortation here. I'm going to give you an acronym, LISTEN, the word LISTEN, to help us use our words in a way that is pleasing to the Lord, that helps actually create instead of kill, that helps to, to heal instead of harm. The Proverbs, so beautiful, Proverbs 12, 18, says, Reckless words pierce like a, like a sword, but the tongue of the wise brings healing. So listen to this again. This is an acronym, LISTEN. 
Listen, L-I-S-T-E-N, it actually helps us to understand how to use our words in a way that's pleasing to the Lord. The first, the L, stands for look in the mirror. Look in the mirror. When we want to use words, the first thing that we should stop, we should pause and say, you know what, I need to look in the mirror for a second. What do I need to learn about myself? Look in the mirror. Again, the acronym is LISTEN, because we are so important. Remember what James has said earlier in chapter 1. He has said, each of us should be, should be quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to anger. So first, we are to look in the mirror. Second, we are to intercede. When you want to talk to someone, you go to the Lord first. You intercede for them. If you haven't prayed for them, you have no business talking to them. You acknowledge the presence of God in the situation. You know, there have been times where Sarah and I are we're having an hour of this big argument, and one of us, often Sarah, will say, can we, just, can we just stop and pray? Okay, fine. <laughs> oh, if you want to. Why would we do that for? I don't need God. Right? Stop and intercede. So first is look in the mirror. Second is intercede. Third is sympathize. Sympathize. Actually try to walk in their shoes. And this is how you know you've sympathized enough. When, when their perspective becomes plausible to you, when what they've done, even though you may disagree with it, becomes plausible, you think, you know what? I, I could have actually done that myself. It becomes plausible. So first we look in the mirror. Second we intercede. Third we sympathize. And when you sympathize, your tone, the shrillness in your voice will go down, the irritation will be unfelt, and you'll, have, you'll actually become something that is incredibly, not only beautiful, it is incredibly powerful. You will become gentle. Gentle. You know what the Proverbs say? This is a beautiful proverb. The Proverbs say, a gentle tongue can break a bone. I can remember all my years in the military. I was in the military nine years. The first four was at a military school. And well, what, do you, what do we do? We yell at each other. Right? I was yelling, you know, the upperclassmen yelling at the, at the freshmen, etc. And I can remember as a freshman, a basic cadet, all, all the upperclassmen were yelling and screaming at us because everything we did was always wrong. And actually, one time we really did blow it as a, as a flight. We blew it and we did the wrong thing. And all the, all the upperclassmen were just yelling and screaming at us. And then the flight commander came, and our flight commander, a short guy, just we loved him to death. And he... Um, I'll never forget, he didn't, he just stopped and he just said very quietly, very gently, guys, I'm so disappointed in you. And all of us, you can just see like all, it just broke us. All the yelling, all the screaming, just, just, just whatever, just bounced right off. What penetrated, what was powerful was a gentleness, a true concern. <coughs> So we look in the mirror, we intercede, we sympathize in a way that leads to plausibility, in a way that leads to gentleness. Uh, T, we tell the truth. We tell the whole truth and nothing but the truth. So often we can be indirect, we can be subtle, we can bounce around things. Lay it out there. Say what is true as you understand. You've listened, you've asked questions, and say, hey, you know what, from my, my perspective, this is what I see. Am I wrong or right? E, expect feedback. Actually expect that, that you don't, there's things that you don't know. That I'm going to say something, it's going to be incorrect, it may not be the whole truth, whatever, you just you don't, you don't know. And then finally, end, and this is so important, never give up. Never give up. See, listen to this. Let me go back to the illustration I used with Sarah. 
and you know, I was cutting her down, and she said, you know, she said, she said it hurts so much. And I said, yeah, it's tr- but it's true. And that is actually false. It's not true. Because truth, this is so important, truth without hope is a lie. Truth without hope is a lie. If you don't remember anything from the sermon, I want you to remember that one thing. Truth without hope is a lie. When we go to someone and say, well, this is true, and we criticize them, we are the mouthpiece of the evil one, the accuser of the brethren. That's what we are. That's what the Satan means, accuser. And we're accusing, and everything he's saying is true. We are sinful. We are sinners. We are sinful. We are wicked. We are, we are all, those are all, those things are all true, but it was also void of the reality of the cross of Jesus Christ. The reality of one who can create good out of evil, bring life out of death, and blessing out of curse. It is void of the one who can take the most terrible situations and bring what is good and beautiful. And when I come to someone and I say, I criticize Sarah, I criticize my children, often, so often my daughters, I will just, I will prematurely, uncharitably criticize. I see them doing something, what is that about? And he immediately assumed the worst of them. That is corroding our relation. I have to go to them and apologize profusely. Well, they're teenagers, so they must be up to no good. Never give up. Again, truth without hope is a lie. Look in the mirror. Intercede. Sympathize. Tell the truth. Expect feedback. And never give up believe that in this moment, right here in the midst of the chaos of this very difficult conversation, God is present. He's present. And he wants to bring good out of it. He wants to bring greater intimacy out of it. He's present and he's powerful. So to stop and ask him, say, God, please intercede here. Come in and take over. Take over my my mouth. I surrender, you know, David, let me, just, let me conclude with this. David in Psalm 141 has the most beautiful prayer. Again, this is Psalm 41. I mean, I'll, I'll conclude with this. Psalm, um, excuse me, 141. He has this beautiful prayer. It's so, it's so I think it's just an amazing words from, of a man of such power, a man who's a king, who has all the authority in the world. And he says this. He's verse 3. Set a guard over my mouth, O Lord. Keep watch over the door of my lips. Isn't that beautiful? Set a guard over my mouth, O Lord. Keep watch over the door of my lips. Brothers and sisters, I long for Good Shepherd to be a place of teachers. James isn't saying, hey, look, you know, none of you should be teachers because it's really, you know, whatever. He's saying, look, we need teachers. We need counselors. But counselors who are willing to step back and look at the war that is going on, that is being waged in their heart. A war that is saying, look, who's in control of my, of my tongue? And that cry out to God saying, God, please intervene. May your word, your mighty word, create life in me. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, what an amazing thing, Lord. What a, what a difficult message James has for us, Lord. Especially me as a teacher, Lord. I think about how often I am so hypocritical, so guilty of, what, of, of just failing, as, as the man said, as my friend said to me, to actually maybe I could benefit from my own sermons. Oh, Lord, I pray here that you indeed would speak words of life and hope. That we as small groups, that we as brothers and sisters in the Lord would come alongside each other to encourage, 
to counsel, to pray. Make us persons who listen, who look in the mirror, who intercede, who sympathize, who tell the truth, who expect feedback, expect correction, and who never, ever give up. Because your word is power. Your word can create and bring life and hope. Father, may our words heal as yours have. May our words bring life as yours do. We love you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.